Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. I'm Stevie Ward, Leeds Rhinos player and Leeds Rhinos captain and mentality founder and entrepreneur. This is a pretty relevant and pretty uh, specific podcast that scratches one of my own itches at the minute being a concussed athlete. But I chat to Dan Carcillo, who is an ex-ice hockey player for the NHL. He played nine years in the NHL, 12 years professionally. He was an enforcer on the rink and has had 100 fights in the game, 100 fights, and he's also won two Stanley Cups. Dan was physically, sexually and emotionally abused at 17 years old, along with other rookies by veterans as a youngster coming through the ranks because of quote-unquote hockey culture and the unwritten understanding of what goes on in the room stays in the room. Dan has also had seven diagnosed concussions himself, something which has formed a purpose for him in shedding light post-career on treatments and how concussions need to be handled better. He talks openly about rehab, what he went through and how concussion is treated in the game of ice hockey. He had a best friend, Steve Montador, who died at 35 after having four concussions in 12 weeks. He died of CTE. We talk about some of the experiences and some of the moments that he spent with Steve before his passing. Dan has been through the treadmill of treatments and farmer's medication to get better from his concussion. He now, however, puts a lot of his recovery down to the use of psilocybin, which is the psychoactive ingredient within magic mushrooms. This is being used to research and is in phase three research for severe depression treatment and anxiety, along with a whole host of other conditions. He's now farming CBD and looking at different ways that medicinal mushrooms and psychedelics can be used to help concussion. Dan is now full of purpose and intent for his next chapter in life. You can hear all about that in this podcast. Enjoy. Today is a little bit different, or the start and the beginning of today is a little bit different because we are kicking off with a snippet of Dan Carcillo's story from the 14th of June 2018. The audio is taken from the Players' Tribune. Dan and the Players' Tribune teamed up to create a candid, to say the least, video which explains concussion and its effect on athletes, specific on athletes in the NHL. Go over to playerstribune.com to see the full video and more information on Dan Carcillo and his work that he's been doing with them too. It's scary. Like, what's the point? What's the point of of, uh, of playing professional sports? And um, it's supposed to be for the memories, you know. And <clears throat> you can't remember that anymore. It's uh, it's really scary. We're in Florida, Orlando, Florida. Uh, I'm getting personal treatment for the head traumas that I sustained while playing in the NHL. I needed to come here because my speech was being slurred uh, every month or every week, every day that went by. The sun hurt my eyes more and more. I was having headaches, problems sleeping, more mood swings, depression, anxiety. Flip a coin the night before I went to bed and I wouldn't know how I'd wake up the next morning. It's not an easy proposition for a man um, with pride and ego uh, to come here and assess the state of my brain, especially with a three and a half year old son, a year old daughter, and another daughter on the way. 
quality of life that repetitive traumatic brain injuries rob from you is I would give back all of my money, I would give back all of the time. You can take my name off the Stanley Cup twice over. I can't, I can't live like that anymore, you know? I just can't. Uh, this is really working to kind of recalibrate your brain's perception of how you stand and how you occupy your space. Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, you're 80% more likely to contract those three those three diseases if you have three or more concussions. That's fucking scary. I'd be scared if I was still playing in the NHL, if I was Sidney Crosby, if I was any one of those young kids. I wish that I had been given the information that was withheld from me while I played in the NHL, and I can't lay my head on the bed when I see injustice and I see people being treated in the same manner as my friend Steve Monador had been treated. I'm the type of person that when I see injustice, I need to act. And I need to hold people accountable. The truth. Tell the fucking truth. The people who are running the NHL and the NHLPA right now need to step up and take care of the best athletes in the world, the best hockey players in the world. Build a brain plasticity center and if uh, NHL player gets hurt, send him there. You'll get a better athlete back. You'll have less man games lost, and everybody wins. There's no way that an athletic therapist or an orthopedic surgeon should be touching our heads. In my experience, they cannot properly diagnose a traumatic brain injury, and they cannot properly build you a program accordingly to make new neurological pathways around those dead neurons. This is how you treat it. This is how it's diagnosed. And this is real treatment. And hopefully this can circumvent early onset dementia, early onset Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease. The stats aren't flattering, the research isn't flattering. Um, but I think if you have hope and you do the work, um, that you can you can stave that off. I, I really I believe that. Um, I just uh, I don't want somebody else to be in this position. You, know? you have a lot more years to live after professional sports, and uh, starting to feel like myself again, and, and my personality is coming back. I'm able to sleep. Uh, my sensitivity to light is, has vanished. Yeah, I fought. And I played the game very hard. And yes, I gave out many traumatic brain injuries. I also sustained many. My son is three and a half years old right now. He'll see my fight videos on YouTube, but he'll also see these player tribute videos. And hopefully that will educate him in the risks of the job that I did. No. No. No, I don't love the NHL. I love the game of hockey. Awesome, mate. Mate, I'm pumped for this. I'm pumped for this because I've seen I've seen some of the stuff you've put out. I've seen um, some of the bits you've done with like Players Tribune and all these different bats. And as I mentioned last time, for where I'm coming from to talk to you, it's very, very relevant for me. And I guess we save the time to chat for when it's very relevant for me. But um a bit, bit of info for people listening to the Mentality podcast and people that listen to this. 
So you play for the Chicago Blackhawks. You were 12 years professional, but nine years in the NHL. Um, you've had seven diagnosed concussions, which is a very similar number to me, by the way, Paul, um, as we speak right now. And you've had 100 fights in on the ice, just on the ice, I imagine. Um, and um, your nickname's Carbomb. So, mate, that's that's the stuff that, that I can pull up at you. That's the stuff that I see that, that I've seen, obviously. Um, and there's more depth to you, of course, on, on the Players' Tribune um, articles and stuff like that. Those are sort of the headlines, but I know there's a bit more to it and there's a bit more to your story. Uh, I guess we could just kick off with you telling us a bit of your version, your version, if you like, of, of, of the story and, and where, where you're coming from and... and I guess what your mission is now, and then we maybe we can pick apart where where we go from there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> first and foremost, thanks for having me on. And no worries, man. I guess it started in a in a small town. Yeah, it started in a small town in <clears throat> King City, Ontario, is where I grew up in Canada. And and hockey uh, is like religion in Canada. And you just when you're old enough to walk, then you're old enough to skate. And we started hitting around the age of four. So the seven diagnosed concussions was what happened in, uh, professionally. But um, there was obviously a lot of trauma <clears throat> leading up. And then there's a bunch that were undiagnosed, as you know. Yeah. And so um, coming up in hockey, um, I just applied myself to really, I was the type of person that applied myself to anything I did, like school. And uh, I was lucky enough to get drafted. Uh, when I was um, uh, 18 years old to the Pittsburgh Penguins professionally. And then I started my professional career in the AHL <clears throat> back in 2004. And um, it was something that was never really talked about in the hockey world. <clears throat> Number one, mental health in, in general was just never talked about. You know, you, you mm -hmm. tough it through. Just You really didn't even, back then, you didn't recognize what mental health was because unless you went to a rehab or unless you had some sort of psychologist or therapist, you really you didn't, it wasn't talked about. And so, um, now like looking back on it, you talk about like stress or stressors and that was definitely these mental health complications that we were all really dealing with. But I used the game as an emotional release and I had some things happen to me in junior hockey when I was uh, a minor, uh, sexually, physically, verbally abused. And that really catapulted and changed me as a person on the ice and off the ice and that's where you see that carbon persona throughout my mm -hmm. career. It's this guy who's really angry, agitated, frustrated, sad, really has no control over his impulse control issues and is really, you know, just taking out, um, taking out the anger through, again, the game that I use as an emotional release. And, um, you know, there were a lot of injuries and there were a lot of, um, you know, you know, there's a trauma that really goes undiagnosed. And in my career, again, I had those seven concussions and really teams didn't talk about, well, this is what we're going to do to rehabilitate you. The uh, prescription was, here's a bunch of opiates and go home. And when you are symptom free, then you can come back to the rink and we'll try to get you better. And then they put you on a bike. And if that doesn't make your symptoms worse, then essentially you're cleared to play and you come back. And so... Mm -hmm. That was no different. Like at the end of my career, I retired in 2015. I received my seventh concussion. Um, when I got to the Chicago Blackhawks, when I was 25, there was a guy there by the name of Steve Monador who 
helped me, uh, showed me how to live like a happy and fulfilling life. Cause I wasn't using, you know, alcohol or opiates at that point when I was 25 and it was just really nice to have him there. And I really gelled with him. But that last year in the league, he sustained four concussions in a matter of 12 weeks. And then, and he was gone within a, a year and a half. And so, um, I really had to start, you know, looking at my own career and looking at the signs and symptoms in my own life, because I had all of the same symptoms that he had. And I don't want to scare anybody because, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there that are fear mongering and saying that everybody has CT. Well, you can't diagnose CT unless you're dead. Mm. So there's really no point in scaring people. What we do have is, and being real is we have brain injury and we have brain damage. And so we have brain damage symptoms, you know, like, um, impulse control issues and problem solving. And, but the good thing about it is there's things that we can do and there's things that can do to be preventative, to break up the tau proteins that cause these neurodegenerative diseases. And so at that point I had a decision to make when I saw all of those signs, uh, do I keep going? And there were other things, other factors that played into it, like my seventh concussion. I just had my son born and I didn't really want to be an absent father, always on the road and and continuing down this destructive path. So I made a decision to stop. And, you know, after Steve passed away, um, he had found CTE all over his brain. And so I created a foundation called Chapter 5 Foundation, which um, helps athletes transition into life after the game. And just really, I mean, what it's become is this, um, this gateway to basically diagnosing yourself that we like I know now throughout my career that I, I did suffer from depression, that I did have anxiety and I just never dealt with it. And then when you get into civilian life, because I'm in civilian life now and um, it becomes really difficult when you're when you're when you're not able to problem solve and when you don't want to be around people and when loud noises, you know, make yeah. you upset. And so really delving into to helping these guys uh, get these these proper treatments and modalities and I've spoken to you about the same things it's really it's these natural supplements um, that really help to increase you know things like BDNF and and really help to help stimulate these different areas of our brain and so when I retired in 2015 then I had to I created the foundation but then I also had to like find my own brain health and it was a four-year journey I spent about $200,000 and I got to a point 10 months ago where I realized that I was caught in a system of like big pharma here in America for concussions where they just wanted me to go there, do all this fancy work, spend all this money, but they never wanted to check my blood, what my body was naturally creating, and they never wanted to talk about supplementation. So that was kind of a, a, a red flag for me. So what I did 10 months ago was... I, I checked my blood and I found that everything was off because with guys like us uh, with repetitive head trauma and a history of that, then the pituitary gland that sits right here in your thyroid, uh, they can be damaged. And so I found that mine was damaged. And then I... How, how did you find that out done? Was that through a scan or no, through... So I went to an endocrinologist, um, somebody basically right. tests your blood and then the difference, though, is, is in seeing the, the blood makeup and your genome makeup and, and your hormone makeup, um, you have to make sure that they just don't – most of them are just like, oh, you're close to the average, so you're okay. Well, that's not what we want, especially when we're dealing with brain health. Subjective. We want to be, be 70 – yeah, to 100%, right? So 
Um, you know, there's, um, there's things that we can do, um, to be proactive. Um, and there's things that, uh, that I think that is the first step. The first step is figuring out what I'm, my, my body's naturally creating. Don't go to these, you know, these clinics that like make you t- push these buttons and tell you that they're going to promote mm-hmm. neuroplasticity. So, um, that's what I did. And then I did a QEEG and that was 10 months ago before I, I found, um, psychedelics as well. And what happened with the QEEG and the blood work, everything was so off. I'd spent all this money. I was experiencing anxiety and depression. And then that turned into suicidal thoughts because I just, I thought I'd tried everything, you know, and I'd spent all this money. And then there was, um, there was a moment where a former teammate reached out and then I went to a farm and I didn't know that this was going to happen, but they introduced me to, um, mushrooms containing psilocybin in a traditional mushroom ceremony. And that, if you look at all of the research, um, stimulated my brain areas that were shut off due to trauma, uh, helped my right and left brain hemispheres communicate. And then for my mental health problems, it, it basically shut down this default mode network where you hold your sense of self and all of the destructive mm-hmm. thought patterns were now disrupted by this five hour ceremony. And then I came back home and I just felt different and I felt good and I felt a little happier and then I changed my diet and I did a whole bunch of other things lifestyle wise that promoted uh, an even better feeling. And I stayed on a regimen of uh, CBD to flush out the inflammation in my brain. And then I went on medicinal mushrooms, which don't contain psilocybin, like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, chaga. And, yeah. and that helped to promote and stimulate the healing of my myelin sheath, which is is basically our thoughts uh, go across the axons um, and sometimes that gets damaged. That helps to repair that. Um, so like when we have these impulse control issues, we're usually having a thought, it, it hits one of these damaged um, areas in our brain and we, and we just, you know, we lose it. And um, yeah. so that started to heal. And then I did a microdose. And at the six month mark, I felt so good that I wanted to retest and just prove to myself and to everybody else. Anecdotal stories are really cool, but most people you're talking mm-hmm. about something this radical um, or something, I wouldn't even say it's radical, something that's been so heavily uh, stigmatized. By the, stigmatized. Um, yeah. You have to show them science. You have to show them pictures. So I did a QEEG six months in and I did my blood work. I got clear blood work for the first time and I got a clear QEEG with no abnormalities. And that was from, you know, maybe three or $400 worth of mushrooms over six months. So really equitable access, which is great. Cause one of the things I kept hearing about those clinics, they charge some of them $10,000 a week. I mean, who can afford that? You know? Um, mm, so yeah, I'm just like really blessed to be able to not only recover this, but then, my brain health and then carry this message that, you know, these marginalized equitable access, uh, communities can, can access this amazing, amazing treatment. As long as you know where to get it responsibly and you know how to use it responsibly. And, and there's things that we talk about with uh, set and setting and dosage. And yeah. if you can follow that, uh, and you do it with somebody who's a professional, then I think that uh, most people can have, 
the amazing gains that I've had. And that's one of my missions is I'm setting up retreats with guys, uh, retreats with veterans, retreats with first responders, people suffering from mental health uh, complications, whether it's repetitive head trauma derived or not. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's kind of where my main focus is now in my life is getting this amazing treatment to people. That's, that's awesome, mate. Thank, thanks very much for like, you've put a massive outlay there and you've, you've made my job really, really easy. Cause now everyone's heard the sort of outline we can go into it. We can go into a bit of depth, mate. And, um, yeah, that, that's brilliant. I've got loads of questions to ask you from the, from the back of that sort of outline that you've, that you've, you've put out there. Um, but I think if we we sort of we look at the end there, like the, the mission that you're on there with the the sort of medicinal mushrooms and the um, the CBD and 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 the sort of looking at the big pharma, but then going an alternative view. I want to ask loads of questions about that. But I think if we zoom right back to the start, um, so people can understand the head knocks that you've had so people can understand um, the trauma that you've been through, um, you know, whether that's on ice or whether that's sort of the abuse um, that sort of happened in that. I guess it's that environment that, that you walk into as a young lad. He's 17 years old, I think, when you when you go into to this, um, is it AHL that you went into? Um, no, I was 17. It's called the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League. Right. Okay, cool. So you've gone in there and obviously there's sort of like this, environment this unwritten sort of um culture that goes on that no one knows about um you've gone in there and, and you've sort of experienced firsthand the severity of that obviously the playing the the the, the, the full-on um training and, and, and games you will do but also the stuff off the off the ice if you if you like we normally say off the field but off the ice um could you could you give us a picture for for what that was like and and how that sort of shaped I guess it shaped your career like you said you you know you're sort of a really physical player you're, you're classed as the enforcer in in your in your game in in your you know in your position you'd be the enforcer like for, for rugby league it's it's the sort of unwritten rules for for being an enforcer for a, a, a player in rugby league you know it wouldn't be a type of position it'd be the a way that a player plays and it'd be to rough up the other team it'd be to you know, to sort of be more aggressive than, than what sort of, I guess, regular, it'd be so above average, more aggressive and, and, and more to upset and put off the opposite team. It'd be good to know what role, how you think that you carried out that role as the enforcer, but also like what you walked into at 17 and, and what surprised you, what, what made you not turn away from it and, and how you went in there and, and sort of dealt with it, but then moved on to the career that, that you had? Yeah. So first of all, hockey culture is extremely homophobic. It's extremely um, toxic. It is, again, you don't talk about anything. Um, one of the main rules is what's said in the room stays in the room and when you have something like that and you have such a power influx, so kids are playing hockey from four until they're 16 or 17, and then they're this close to making the NHL, you'll listen to whoever that coach is. And they, they hold your, your dream in their hands. And with one phone call to an NHL club to say that um, someone's uncoachable, you're done. That's it. Like, that's how it works. And so um, what I realized when I was 17 and looking back and talking to the veterans that did the things that they did to us 
the coach harbored that environment and he knew about everything and he never stepped in. And so my problem is that that coach is still coaching. Um, he was, yeah, he was fired from four different organizations um, and he's still going on and, and nobody at the higher ups has stepped in. And so with hockey culture, that's, that's how it works. Um, hockey culture or hockey is the white sport that doesn't have a domestic violence issue. They don't have a substance abuse issue. They're not homophobic because they put on, they participate in the parades and stuff. And they say that hockey's for everyone. Meanwhile, it's extremely um, unequitable. It costs upwards of ten to $20,000 to register for one season, you know? Oh. So like basically all of the opposite things that they put on their campaigns, they do. And they, they lean on people that talk about abuse stories um, and they use their power and influence to shut them up. And so, mm -hmm. um, you just don't talk, you know, and if you talk and if you're any different and you show too much personality, they don't like that. So you're basically like a good soldier, right? You just, you put your head down, you play yeah. hockey, you play your role. And then my role after that, like, so my coach, I had this conversation with my coach, um, from, I had the same coach for a really long time from like four, uh, I would say like around six to 13. And he's like, you know, he's like, what happened to you, man? Like you were an amazing player. You were a great skater, you weren't violent, you scored goals, you made great passes. And I look back on my career now and well, what happened to us every single day is we had to uh, strip naked in front of our stalls and bend over and get hit with a paddle by 12 rookie or by 12 veterans. Some of them would whisper in our ear, like, don't worry about it because you're going to be able to do this to the rookie next year. And there's this, you know, there's this initiation culture in hockey that's very very common i've got over 500 stories in my inbox of it where for some reason there's this demeaning act that you need to strip someone naked and you need to physically abuse them and um i, I still you know i still struggle with it and that's why i talk about it a lot because it still goes on and and it really affects yeah. people's lives and it affected my life and it changed the whole course of my life. It changed how I was as a player and then how I interacted with my family. And I always thought that now, okay, I got to fight everybody because I don't trust anybody. The, the teammates that you have, that you're supposed to work with and trust. Now they're your abusers. So really the tra trajectory of my whole, whole life changed. I had addiction issues and substance abuse problems and relationship problems and uh, but again i was able to use the game to be able to promote some sort of healing and get out you know some aspect of my anger and frustration so i was grateful for that year um i really i went to rehab and then i really started kind of delving in and peeling back all the layers and you realize you know that um, everything that you learn is really wrong and you can live a different way and you can use mindfulness practices and you can build relationships. And, um, you know, I, I hope that one day hockey gets to a point where it's not fear-based learning. So for the most part, coaches make you walk on eggshells and yeah. you have to be scared to lose your job in order to perform. I think that's bullshit. Yeah. I think that because, because happening, Happy people are more creative and the more creative you are, the happier you are. And in hockey, you got to be really creative, man. 
And yeah. I just, I can't for the life of me figure out why we're still coaching that way where guys are scared to come to the rink and they're yeah. scared because that's not what you want. So I advocate for trying to coach a different way, you know, and, and I think you'll get better athletes. I really do. Yeah, man, that, that's, it's really interesting. Um, one of the questions that we're going to pose to you later is, um, it's, it's what you can find and, and, so I, I'm 26 now, um, and obviously a, a, a rugby league player. That's a like a it's probably a brutal physical game. Like if you watch it, you'll notice just people getting smashed up constantly, running into each other, doing it again all all game, 80 minutes. It's just a brutal game, um, and I think you know like that that sort of old school sort of um, way of of bringing players through and and sort of talking to them so that like you say you're putting fear in them so that they can overcome that to get to which I imagine is, is what they use with you you know that sort of desperation to make it that desperation to 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 get to NHL to sort of win the, the Stanley Cups like you have um, you know that, that can sort of be mimicked in, in rugby league you know you know, I, I was so desperate to, to get there to make it and, and I've I've not experienced anything like compared to what you have but I know that the sort of the way that players are being brought through is changing compared to that old school way. Um, and, and I guess, you know, this, this podcast and, and, and mentality is, is to, to bring more of that sort of mindful approach or that sort of, um, I, I guess it's just more of a, a rounded approach and, and a more compassionate approach to it and, and, and the way to look at it. And um, that's, that's something that, 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 that could be a debate that, that we could have a debate about, you know, that sort of conflict um, that you have as a professional because me talking to you I imagine it's very similar you sort of you've got a conflict for your health like you think about your health I think when you get a bit more older um, but you know me growing up I had a complete disregard for my health complete disregard for my sort of physical body because I wanted to do so well for the team I wanted to do so well um, to win stuff to win trophies to, to win awards um, individually um, but you know there's sort of a, a line that you have to find for yourself um, where you're not sort of exerting yourself too much where you're just not yeah, by the end of it you're going to be left with you know I mean I, I, I can I can deal with a shoulder replacement I can deal with a, a sort of knee replacement or whatever but I guess you know at this point now when I'm talking to you um, you know I've had a really bad head knock Um which, you know, I'm still feeling symptoms two months later. So, you know, this, this sort of mission with mentality and, and what you're speaking about seems very similar. Um, and, and I guess that's left you at a position where you've wanted to, to make it into the NHL too. So um, I'd love to, I'd love to pick up on, on there, mate, after you've come through the sort of the ranks as, as a youngster and, and that sort of um, track that you've had to go through that, that old school, really tough Write a passage, I guess, that you've been through. Um, what was Steve Montador to you, and and what was your experiences around what he was going through a bit before his, his, his four concussions in twelve weeks? But also, were you experiencing concussion around that time, and 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 what did it mean to you, and, and what are his actions like? How did he act? Yeah, so I had up to that point in in Chicago, I had four, I had four of my seven concussions, and. I was just coming out of not getting qualified, so not getting re-signed by an organization. And for the first time, I was what they call a free agent, so I could 
sign with whoever I wanted. But mm. I mean, the writing was on the wall for me. My destructive behavior on and off the ice was starting to catch up to me. And some teams really didn't want to touch me. And, and then I got signed for basically like half the amount that I was making the year before and a really big discount and close to the minimum in the league, which told me I was almost out of the league. Mm. And so I made a decision July 1 when I did sign the contract that I had to clean my life up or I would be out of the league. This could be my last year. And so I treated it that way. And then I, I went. And the biggest thing that I did for mental health and that I think people can do for their mental health is to recognize that while my life isn't is, is basically becoming unmanageable and I need to ask for help. And so oh. I did that. And it's really difficult for for men specifically, but for athletic men uh, with egos and, you know, this thought process that we don't need help, that we can do it all on our own, um, <clears throat> you know, that needed to change for me. And that saved my life, asking for help. And then I started going to like a, uh, meetings and I started to really delve into why I was like the way I was. And, um, and then once I started doing that, I started to get a lot more peace and really it changed it changed everything about me that summer and then i met steve when i got to the team uh in september so that happened in july and then i was like oh like that was just such a godsend because i was so i was so awkward um because i didn't know how to live like a sober life and and i was you know it's it's so new so i had this guy there who had like tattoos everywhere and was jacked and cool and good looking and could still go to like places talk to girls you didn't need to be hopped up on alcohol and and other things and so i just followed him you know and we're coachable thank gosh like we we know that if we like something like we can adopt we can adapt and adopt it into our lives so I literally just went everywhere with a man, did lunches and dinners, and we really hit it off. And he just showed me a new way to live and really, you know, changed everything. He changed the way I played the game, too, because I wasn't just going out there, like, beating people up for no reason. Honestly, like, I fought in my first five years, I probably had 80% of those 100 fights. And then I fought wow. maybe 20 times in my last five years because I just... I realized the damage I was doing not only to myself, but to other people. And I was just like, like, you know, kind of questioning why, like, why, why yeah. are we even doing to each other? Yeah. And so, um, obviously, you know, we get paid and there's, there's monetized value and, um, and then you're so far into it that you're like, well, it's hard to stop now because really we identify with it, you know, with who we are. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It's like, we're, we could take those lessons that we have, our work ethic that we learn through sport, and we can apply it in real life, you know. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm doing now. But Steve was just really influential, and so, like, if anybody's listening to this and they're in a place in their life where they can look at, like, wow, like I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost going to lose my job. Uh, relationships around me are falling apart. Um, I'm not sleeping well. I'm not happy. I'm, I'm not the person that I used to be well you reach out to something that my sponsor said was when you see something in somebody that you want just go up to that person and say hey man you know or woman introduce yourself and 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 then try to get it you know try to learn what they're doing yeah and um so I did with Steve and then and then what you have to do once you like once you get it 
then you got to give it away, you know, in order to keep it. Like it. I like it. I like it, mate. That's, that's brilliant. And there's, there's a few things you mentioned there. You spoke a bit about ego. Um, I'm wondering if we've got the same understanding of, of ego. And, um, I've seen that you've, you've been posting a bit of Alan Watts on your um, Instagram. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sort of envisaging this guy that we're talking to now, um, that, that you say that is sort of struggling a bit, struggling with relationships, um, struggling with, um, they're in a monologue, their thoughts that they have, um, what they need to do to feel comfortable. Um, could you give a bit of a roundup on when you was introduced to your own ego or sort of started to understand it more? Um, was it a case of, of finding it, so finding out the, the parts of your ego that you didn't like and you sort of found a bit, um, you know, that, that got you in trouble for say, or... or, or, or piss you off did you have to find those bits and um in order to then accept it because as you were just talking before like i think if you want to improve or if you want to sort of get better i feel like you've you've got to in a way find that bit that 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 you need to get better so for instance you you did a lot of looking into your past and looking into what happened to you as a as a youngster to know that why you needed to go out and be angry and, and fight and, and do all this. Do you know what I mean? What was, what was your sort of understanding of ego back then and how has it progressed for you? Um, sorry, you were cutting out a little bit, but I think I get, I think I understand. So a lot of it was um, uh, like the self-reflection and the introspective look. Um, I had, I had a therapist at that point that I was able to like to talk to along with other people that were, you have to find if you want spirituality and you want to like figure out self-improvement and self-care you've got to surround yourself with people that are also interested in that. Yeah. And so I found a community that was interested in that and interested in self-improvement. And, and then I just stuck by them and I asked questions and really for me, writing was really great. Um, writing any type of feeling that I had and then being able to, again, talk to somebody when I noticed, then you, then you are able to like recognize destructive behavior. So for example, nowadays when I want to isolate and I don't want to text people back and I don't want to call them back or I don't want to respond to emails, like that's a, that's a big trigger for me. That's like, okay, something's going on. Um, and then if I'm oversleeping or I'm undersleeping, then I know something's going on. And, um, and then if I'm uh, my diet, if I change my diet um, <clears throat> unexpectedly and I, and I don't follow what I know makes me feel good, then I know something's going on. And so it's like this self-sabotage that creeps back in your life. And, you know, I'm not perfect. Like I have weeks still or, or I mean, I say weeks, you know, three or four months ago, it used to be a week that I used to sit in it, you know, yeah. and now it's like it's a day and sometimes it's not even a day. It's it's an hour. Like I'm able to radically like look at these things right away and be like, okay, you know, wait a minute, there's something going on here. There's something that I'm stressing about. There's maybe an argument with my wife or um, stress at work or there's something, there's something that's triggering this. And, and once you deal with the something, once you figure out, oh, okay, I am stressed at work. Well, let me go look at that. Let me try to knock some things out. So I'm not ruminating in thought about what I need to do. Mm. And just worry about the outcome, you know, and that usually helps to alleviate 
these these types of problems. Yeah, it may it's 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 quite good what you're saying, and it's it's probably similar with me. I think there's a lot of things that it, it's sort of a it's sort of a power if you you're sort of self aware of that because there's those sort of building blocks that that you can put on top of each other that that makes you like say hundred percent like we're never hundred percent but say ninety five percent. But there's also the other side of it as well, where there's building bro- building blocks that, that could take you the other way. Um, that's what that's what I see it as. And and I know, like you mentioned, the sleep. It could be something that you've not been honest with, something that that's sort of playing on your mind, something that you need to tell someone. Um, and sort of once you, you sort of get those in order, like get your shit in order. That's that's basically what what we're saying. Get your shit in order, but you know what to get in order. You're in a more power, powerful position, if that makes sense. Um, so that, that, I'm glad he said that and it's, it's great to, to touch on that and Steve I didn't know this but Steve was an influence in that capacity in your life could you tell us a bit about um, your viewpoint for Steve for, for when he, he eventually passed away because he, he, did he pass away with was the CTE the reason he passed away and, and how he passed on and, and, and the sort of head knocks that he took? What were his symptoms like and, and how did you feel seeing it go on? Yeah, so he had, uh, he, he got cleared for 19 concussions in wow. the NHL, documented. Yeah. And four and of those. documented, the, yeah. Yeah, and four of them in the last 12 weeks. I mean, if you, if you sustain four concussions in 12 weeks, anybody, not to mention that it's his 16th, 17th, 18th, yeah. and 19th, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And that's what, that's what happened to him. And then the, the, the signs, the symptoms were, you know, he had to call the Porsche dealership um, once a day to figure out where his car was whenever he'd park it in a, in a restaurant parking lot or um, – he had, when I went to his house after he passed, he had 10 keys for the same deadbolt. And really his death, the reason, the cause of death was never publicized, but um, Steve was 35 years old. His son was born four days after he died. And he had stage four CTE all over his brain. So he had that neurodegenerative disease. And there was really no way, once you have stage four I mean, it's, it's a progressive disease and it progresses and we haven't figured out quite how to stop that. Now I say that and it might scare people, but don't be scared because there are things that we can do. And you mentioned, you know, you're never a hundred percent or 95%. I, I, I am, I, the way that I feel right now, I feel like I'm 200%. I feel the best I've ever felt in my life. And so I, I feel like there's like a thing called you know, there's post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's also like this post-traumatic growth. And I've had so much damage that I keep getting better and better and better. And, um, with Steve's situation, there's just, if it progresses to a point, I don't think that there's much in the way of stopping it, but what we can do with these medicinal mushrooms that have been proven in, in a bunch of different studies to break up tau protein, tau protein is the protein that they find in our brains that strength strangles our um, our neurons, our axons, and and progresses through our brain. And it's translational medicine. They've found in a bunch of medical studies and using it on on models with rats um, and mice that it actually breaks up tau protein. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I implore people to go and do your own research, but. 
Um, mushrooms have been used for, I mean, tens of thousands of years to promote cognition, to promote um, this type of healing in indigenous tribes and in China. And so um, that's what's really exciting. And I mean, it's, it's so strange because all of these businesses, I call them businesses, um, they want to identify, you know, why CTE works so that they could prescribe you a pharmaceutical. Meanwhile, the pharmaceuticals are right in nature and you can go and just research the way I've done it and you can find something that works for you right now, you know, and we've, we've spoken about that. We've spoken about medicinal mushrooms. And so that's kind of what I'm working on now behind the scenes as well is to put together a company that provides these types of mushrooms in a synergistic effect to target brain health. That's all I care about because the brain operates everything else. And so if we can figure that out. Um, inherently, the great thing about these mushrooms with what's going on in the world right now is they have really great antiviral properties. So they can actually protect you against viruses. So, and again, there's tons, don't take my word for it. There yeah. are a ton of studies out there that you can go and see and see. I've, um, I've, I've, I've heard a lot. So I listen to a lot of Tim Ferriss, I listen to a lot of J Joe Rogan. And, um, I think it was about, I think it might've been Michael Pollan who was on. Um, and he's quite an acclaimed journalist writer and he's wrote quite a few books, a lot on food and, and their, their nutritional properties and cooking and stuff. Um, if I remember rightly, but he also wrote recently, I think it was about a year ago, he wrote a book called how to change your mind. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that, Dan, but it's, yeah. I remember him saying, and this might, this might, um, help people understand the benefits. And I think it's similar for, for mindfulness meditation. Um, but I remember him saying that like, if you, if you imagine your mind as a ski slope, uh, and that ski slope's got the tracks in that, that the skis have gone down in that this sort of practice of, of the mushrooms or whatever that allows you, if you think of those tracks in the ski slope, um, to be like neural pathways and patterns of thinking, it allows the, the mushrooms, um, or this process that you would take them in allows you to fill in those pathways or those sort of patterns that, are, uh, like you said, I think you said before default. So like the default mode thinking, the default, um, pattern of thinking and, and, as we know, like the, the human mind has got a lot of automatic, um, negative, uh, reasons to, to think negatively and, and, and that's what it'll do. So I think from, from what I remember, I think it was something that he, he spoke about seeing his dad pass for why he went on to try him. But he spoke about the fact that he could fill in those tracks, fill in those sort of neural pathways in order to build up more positive ones or to, 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 to build better ones. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like putting basically what you're describing is the destructive thought patterns that we have, whether it's because of the trauma or the white life that we live. Um, and we all have programming that we're susceptible to every day with how we interact with people, places and things. And so what, what he's describing is like what I was, what I was experiencing 10 months ago, was, you know, these very rigid thought patterns, and I just couldn't break them, um, no matter what I tried. And what uh, he's describing psychedelics. So I want to make a distinction, like medicinal mushrooms, like lion's mane, reishi, those have no hallucinogenic effect. Yeah. And, and then there's mushrooms containing psilocybin that are like a classic psychedelic that indigenous tribes have used for tens of thousands of years. 
And that's what he's describing is those mushrooms in a traditional ceremony with the right set setting and dosage and with a, with somebody there to guide you through it, uh, have the ability to basically put snow all on the slopes. Yeah. So now you wake up the next day and all of a sudden like something feels different and you're able to, you know, approach a conversation where maybe you once would have like, you know, snapped and had the impulse control issues in an argument with a family member or um, in an argument with a coworker. And all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore. And you're able to be more patient and you're able to be more understanding. And it, and it goes to speak to what that medicine specifically does on the science aspect is your default mode network. That's again, where it holds a sense of self and where it holds these patterns that we've learned. What they've found is that gets shut down. So for five hours or six hours, that does not operate. So it starts creating the right and left brain hemisphere connections that you weren't able to create because you're not able to shut that off. And that's where like the special sauce is where with these types of psychedelics. And then for me with traumatic brain injury and for you or any, any athlete or anybody that has a history of it, um, it promotes neuroplasticity and neuroregenesis uh, and then it also stimulates those regions of our brain, especially our frontal lobes, our prefrontal cortexes, um, to turn back on. And that's where all of our damage is. And that's where most of the CTE is found in athletes. So this medicine works directly with that default mode network and our, our prefrontal lobes where most of our damage is and it wakes it back up. And then we're able to be creative. And so it really is. It's like, it's the perfect medicine for us. So does that, so it promotes, do you say it promotes healing or activity? Did you say so it like, so if you were to, to take a QEG, so that's like um, a, a sort of scan on your head that would show activity um, that would go on your head. So it's taking the, you know, the, the, the um, psychedelic mushrooms, that's something that would promote activity within those parts that you're talking about that need the activity. And, and does that in, in turn increase healing then? Yeah. So it basically, um, it turns your brain back on. Right. Um, and so, uh, especially, um, as far as we're, we're, you know, problem solving, right. Like the impulse control, if it's shut down due to trauma, you're able to snap, 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 you know, you're not able to think things through rationally, right. You see these people and veterans and athletes doing these crazy things, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Well, when you correlate where the damage is and what this part of the brain operates, it makes a lot of sense. And so if we can turn that back on, if we can stimulate that to come back on and in a five hour ceremony, there is stimulation. It does wake up, but then that's where the microdose regimen comes in because it doesn't get healed in five hours. This is a prolonged, slow, gradual uh -huh. healing that you have to keep introducing the medicine to. So if you're doing that sub-perceptually, so that means I'm on a microdose right now. Nobody would ever be able to tell that I'm on a microdose mm. because I'm not tripping. I'm not, there's no hallucinogenic effect. But what happens is that medicine is continuing to work in my brain and on my, where the damage is. And there's some things with this medicine that you're not going to be able to describe in our lifetime. And you don't need to, you know, because it does have its own inherent intelligence. And 
I think the biggest thing with, with recovering from injury, especially head injury, the number one thing I keep hearing from these TBI survivors is, well, I lost my sense of self. I want to be that person that I was yesterday before the injury. Forget about that. We can get better than that person. So don't think that way, right? You have to bring a positive attitude to the um, to recovery because if you don't, you can try anything in this world yeah. and you won't get So I think addressing the spirit with a big dose of mushrooms is, is one of the first things that people should do. And I'll take it a step further too. I mean, I'm not just whistling Dixie and I'm not just talking. Um, I'm in talks with universities uh, and some pretty serious um, institutions about initiating clinical trials in the specific protocol that helped me recover my brain health so that we could make that more readily available to people who want it, you know? And um, so that's, that's really exciting. And these people are interested in it because they know how, how, how badly TBI affects a, a big community of people. Yeah. Well, man, I, I want to jump into, um, you sound really passionate. You sound really like, um, like you found something there. Um, and that's, that's definitely worth talking more about. Can we talk about the, the stages of, of symptoms that, that, that you had, the, the symptoms you felt, I imagine they're very similar to what I have felt in the recent weeks. Um, and also the, the processes that you went through, you mentioned the sort of, the sort of stuff where it'd be like reaction timing and, and all this sort of stuff. You mentioned, um, you know, big pharma. Could you tell us the, the sort of developments um, and, and how you navigated through those stages? So were there, were there a time where you felt a little bit lost in, in amongst your symptoms? Because I felt like, I felt like um, there's no sort of order to them. Uh, the sort of can grip me at one time and they can be a little bit less the next day and then go back to, to the next, um, you know, sort of the, the migraines, light sensitivity, um, sadness, uh, anxiety, like those, I mean, those are four out of a, a big pool of what you could pick in and pick out of for what, what you can have from concussion. And, and, and I've had for about two and a half months now, um, so could you touch on and where you sat with your symptoms initially? I know you've had a few different concussions, but in this this one where I think you we, you decided to leave the game, is it amongst the same time as you were concussed? And then you sort of developed and, and looked for, you spent a lot of money in, in researching and, and, and what you could do. Um, could you go through those stages and, and in specific as well? the Q um, EEG, uh, which is something I'm really, really uh, sort of wanting to look at and, and investigate myself. Um, so yeah, mate, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to that and, and for, for how you felt during that time and throughout it. Yeah. Um, a lot of the symptoms were light sensitivity, uh, slurred speech, headaches, head pressure, nausea, undersleeping, uh, so a lot of insomnia, which is really dangerous because that's the only time that we heal. Um, and uh, anxiety, a lot of depression, uh, some suicidal ideations at that point, uh, getting towards the end of my career. And there was um, a lot of, you know, just feeling disoriented or, or kind of out of, you're just, you're not feeling normal. Pains and and um, so uh, you know dealing with all of that and then I had a young baby at home too so like loud noises was really was really difficult um, 
and um, there was uh, so all of those, you know, plus plus some other symptoms, and still trying to be a professional athlete and go to the rink. Um, and they were pretty constant for me. Um, some would show up sometimes all of them. Like I, I call a good day. It was like, you know, when two of them would show up, yeah. um, that was like a really good day for me. And, um, so in doing that again, like when you're in your career, the NHL doesn't do anything. They don't, they don't even say concussion. They don't try to rehabilitate you. They just say, when you don't have, have symptoms, then come back. Mm. And so I just kind of had to wait. And a lot of the time they prescribed these opiates, but at that point I wasn't taking anything. And so I really felt the full weight of like what was going on. I was like, man, I got to really, I have to think about leaving because um, the symptoms lasted for like four or five weeks. It wasn't just, you know, a week of this or two weeks. It kept getting longer and longer as I progressed. And we know that cumulative trauma is a thing. So once you get one, you are susceptible to the second, third, fourth, more susceptible. Um, and then I started, you know, I retired, um, about four months after that seventh concussion. So I was able to like go to these clinics and stuff, um, and find some relief for about a month or so, and then do the daily exercises and then it would kind of fall off. And that was kind of the theme for the next four years. And man, it was, it was a long journey, you know, to get to where I am today. <clears throat> And grateful for it because like, I know all the different areas of the brain now and like kind of, you know, how to describe this to people. But, um, what, what ended up saving my life, you know, was the, um, the psychedelic and the psilocybin ceremony in a traditional setting with, with people that have been through it before. And, um, so I'm just glad that I kind of went through everything. I've tried everything and I don't knock anything. Um, because kids, kids, kids need vestibular rehab. Kids need ocular rehab. Kids aren't going to be, um, you know, we're not going to be able to give psilocybin to kids. So at least not right now, you know, indigenous tribes, I should mention their kids out at eight years old and there's no side effects to these. There's no side effects to these medicines unless you have bipolar or schizophrenia, you know? So um, and pharmaceutical companies can't say that about their pharmaceuticals. So, um, but for, for kids, for sure, you know, you, that is an option to go to these, to, to these clinics. But, um, in my experience, the, what saved my life and what really, you know, helped me recover my brain health and, and got me a clear QEG and clear blood work, uh, was that ceremony and then the microdosing. Could you could you explain the the before and after for the QEEG? Um, so like before, I think that's six months ago. He said one of you took that first one, um, and then for around about now, what what were the abnormalities and and what were the differences? And and are you completely symptom free now? Are you like, are you like spick and span? Are you good? Yeah. Um. The the QEEG at the so ten months. It was ten months ago before I started this journey. Cause I wanted to, um, I went to this new clinic and I was like, all right, like, let me try neurofeedback. Cause I didn't try neurofeedback yet. And so they did the baseline and then I saw it was all red. So that just meant that every part of my brain was damaged and not communicating correctly. 
And that really just sent me into a tailspin because I'd been to this clinic before and it's, um, it was just, it wasn't good. So, and then at the six month mark, um, when I, when I went back for the testing, they told me, you know, that I have no abnormalities. And I saw that everything was white, that everything that I was okay, that I was good. And then I take pictures of my, um, the right side of my head. Cause I had atrophy, um, because with damage, when the cells die, they secrete these chemicals that kill other cells. So my, I actually had indents, um, and that's come back. And so, um, you know, you talk about neuroplasticity and neuroregeneration. I mean, this, that's, it's real. Like just go look at the Imperial college of London and the study done in 2014 by, uh, Robin Carhart Harris and his team and an fMRI screen. And, um, it's, it's real, you know, this real, this neurogenesis, they're able to measure it. So, um, that is what I would tell responsible adults to find responsible use, uh, shamans or people that are, um, you know, sourcing it responsibly and that have a really good reputation and, and maps is a really good organization and decriminalized nature is really great. But, um, you know, just do your research. And, and if you have any questions, you know, you can find me on social media and I'm more than happy to answer any questions that people have. And, um, that would be the avenue for people. So like I tell hockey players, you guys have brain damage every year. You should be getting a QEG at the beginning of the year. You should be getting one during, and you should be getting one after. And then you should be doing a traditional ceremony to reset your brain at the very least one and you should be on microdoses and every athlete who's taking head hits should be on CBD because the U.S. government has patents on uh, cannabinoids specifically for neuroprotectants and anti-inflammatories, antioxidants. So um, that is the only patented neuroprotectant that we have on earth. So every single athlete who's doing collision sports should be on it for sure. On CBD, yeah. I'm I'm just thinking um, to to go along with that advice. So you're talking about like the psychedelics and stuff. It's a very different different um, I don't know get culture. Um, I'm not sure if it's is it legal over there in uh, where you are. Is is, is um, psychedelics legal over there or no? It's still a schedule one. Right. Yeah. So it's more like a, do your research and find out. And is there some more info that you could you could give on that in terms of? I've heard about like bad trips and I've heard that there's, there's information that, that, that needs to be given it. And then I think you mentioned it earlier, is it, um, set, set in and, um, you know, sort of those things need to be sort of tick, ticked off as well. Yeah, for sure. And so I should mention that I'm not, um, I'm not in any way telling people to, you know, go out and, and do this. Uh, all that I'm saying is, um, this is what's worked for me. And, and it could possibly work for, for somebody else. And what I would implore them to do is to do their research and to get connected to these, you know, psychedelic societies they are everywhere, um, both in Europe and in North America, and to um, seek out this information about set, setting, and dosage. So set is um, you always have to, or they say the the best results are when people set an intention. So my intention was to recover my brain health and nursing um, life. And then setting is the setting in which you do the experience in. So, you know, being mindful to not be around too many people 
um, especially if you're doing a high dose. And then the high dose comes in with most spiritual high doses are between three and a half and five grams. Um, five grams of dried mushroom is called the hero's dose. And uh, that's what I did uh, 10 months ago. And so um, those three things are imperative. And then the fourth is also, you know, being able to um, find somebody who's responsible, responsibly source the medicine. And that's been through these ceremonies before numerous, numerous times so that they can um, help you achieve set setting and dosage. And what, what are some of the, the things may you've learned like along, along this journey? I know you spoke about that sort of um, the time in, in rehab and the time of first looking at ego. Maybe you can sort of couple these experiences you've had uh, with psychedelics, uh, but also with throughout your career. What are the things that you've learned, and 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 what would you tell? What would you tell an eighteen-year-old uh, car bomb to do? Uh, what would you, what advice would you give to him? Um, I would tell him that winning and making money isn't worth the sacrificing relationships of loved ones and friends and to really take a look at it and to be conscious of the damage that you're doing. And, um, you know, it's easy to say now, but obviously when we're young, man, we charge because we've been programmed to do that. You know, as a kid in Canada, that's just what I was programmed to do. And what I thought you had to do to be successful is to, is to be this, you know, assassin, be this person, uh, and then it's it's purely out of survival. It's you know we're human, and then when you're in a sport, it's me or you. And and if you think that like oh I should lay down to this guy, well you're not you're not going to be successful very long. So um, you know that would be that would be the advice is to just um, be conscious of the damage that you're doing and and to um, you know it's just it's not worth gaining money and putting my name on a freaking silver piece of tin uh, and also sacrificing my body, mind, spirit, and then all of the relationships uh, in this life. Like all we have in this life now that I realize are relationships. And it's not really many of my hockey relationships that are around. It's the people, it's my family and the people I grew up with, you know, that are the most important. How do you, how do you care for that? Because obviously you're a competitor, like you've you've been at it, you know, for so many years, and you've been a, a physical sort of player and and, a, and a, a real sort of challenger. How do you sort of feed that into your you know new life? Do you need to cater for that? Does that need to to find its way in in some other other um, career or or passion that you have now? Yeah, so I just repurpose. Um, now my goal is I realize that I've been through all of this trauma for a reason to be able to. Uh, bring the message to other people and, and hopefully help them snap out of their destructive thought patterns and save them from basically more suffering. And so uh, I'm grateful for everything I've been through. And that's my new purpose in life is to just get this message out and to help people. And tell me about um, Alan Watts and uh, the, the the stuff you've seen Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna. Mate. Tell me how that, how that sort of intersects with your life now. Yeah, man. It's, I mean, these two guys are philosophers them, Krishnamurti, um, just amazing people that have figured it out, you know, that have really, it sounds like they've been here in these <laughs> reincarnated, you know, dozens and dozens of times because <laughs> I, I don't understand how they can access that, that language the way that they do. But um, just, again, it's such a totally different view than what we've learned, right? Coming up in these 
collision sports, like, you know, actually thinking about our actions and the damage that we're doing, uh, not only to ourselves, but to others. And then, and the philosophy, like I was so fearful of death that I would fight everybody and even fight off, you know, death. And, and so now I'm, I'm more comfortable with it after listening to them speak because their philosophies, um, on death and on spirituality are just so, I mean, that's, that's what I truly believe. You know, I truly believe that we are all energy and if we're all energy, energy never goes anywhere. And we never, there was an interesting lecture that I posted the other day with Alan saying, you know, that, um, when I die, uh, I'm going to forget about my former life and come back and be born again. And then when I die, a baby is born and he believes in both of those statements and both of those things happen, you know, <laughs> when we see death, there is a baby born. And so, and we don't remember being born. And so it's, um, you know, doing, doing these, you know, psychedelics and doing ayahuasca, being introduced to nature because these mushrooms grow out of the ground from nature without any help. And they show you the connection that you are to nature. And I've been shown that and it just takes away that fear of death. And now I really don't have a fear of death. And if you take away the fear of death, then you're able to live more presently in the moment um, because I'm right here right now with you, you know? Yeah, I like it, mate. I've 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 stumbled across some Alan Watts talks um, on YouTube, and I've I've ended up having him on for an hour and a half, putting him on speakers for an hour and a half, and l listening to him because you think, wow, where's he going to? And there's some moments where I've had it's like penny drop moments. I don't know if you'll feel that when you're listening to him, but you're like, oh, he's right, he's right, and you, you sort of get a a real sort of clarity from it. And and I think the way he talks, the way he delivers a message, is 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 half of that, to be honest. Um, and and I guess I'd, I'd ask you as well, mate. And, and he, he, this could be at the time where you know you'd you'd sort of notion things about yourself, about your ego, and about you know what where that brought you to. Um, is there books, any books, or any people, or anything that you can remember looking at that, that sort of had a big kickstart to that, or or sort of you know fed into it? Is there any stuff that you can you can think of there? Yeah, the. Uh, one of the best books that changed my life that I read when I was 25, it's called The Joy of Living yeah. by Yungi Mingyor Rinpoche. Right, I will try to write that down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Type in, you'll see, you'll see a beautiful picture of Yungi and he's a monk and um, just amazing, amazing book. And it taught me how to meditate. Um, and then it, and it takes you, through like the different parts of the brain too, uh, just in a really layman's term uh, type of way. So it was a great piece of literature and I recommend it to anybody who's first being introduced to spirituality to check it out. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and you, you talk a lot about meditation uh, on Instagram and um, you talk about this effect that it's had in you as well. Can, can you touch on the way that you would meditate, do you fit it in a, in a specific way into your day? Um, and, and what you've learned from it? Yeah. In the morning, I always wake up and I take, uh, two to five minutes, sometimes longer. Sometimes it'll be with an Alan Watts talk, but for the most part, I sit with myself and my brain and I just, at the end of my bed, uh, eyes closed, you know, straight, good posture and just, 
you know, just breathe deep belly breaths, yeah. um, making sure that my belly is kind of coming, coming out and then coming back in. Uh, what I try to do is, um, the breath in, I double, I double it on the way out. So it relaxes you. And then I sink into my body and I just assess how I feel that morning. And some mornings I'm able to recognize like, okay, I'm a little bit off or my mind's already going a little quickly or a little quicker than I'd like it to. And then I move into um, some type of yoga if that's happening, or um, I've got a infrared sauna and a, you know, or a steam room, or I go for a walk in nature, or I just make sure that I, before I check any emails or before I look at the phone, I make sure that I'm right in the yeah. head. And, and then when I do that, then my days um, are really, really great. You know, and when I don't, then they're a little bit more difficult. And mm. honestly, it's not just in the morning that I do that. Sometimes during the day when I feel myself straying or getting a little antsy, then you're able to do that. And you can take five or six or 10 deep breaths and, and um, you make a gratitude list. That's one of the things that I do when I'm feeling off. Um, and then that just allows you to be more in the present moment. You're grateful for what you have and you're not really in the future being anxious about what you're trying to get. Yeah, that's cool. I like the gratitude, mate. And have you um, have a double with breath work? I imagine you will have done in your time. A little bit, yeah. Like the, the belly breathing um, and not so much like the holotropic breath work, um, but, you know, like we Wim Hof has a pretty decent method and people really like that. But I, I just stick to um, to what works for me and what works for me is is usually, you know, just, um, doubling out my breath, uh, sometimes pausing on the way in pause out. Yeah. You know, so, breathing. Yeah. cool. Um, so mate, if you're going to speak to a, a guy like me, who's had concussion for, for two months, what are the, uh, the things that you'd, you'd recommend doing barring the, um, the psychedelic trips, mate? Yeah. Um, I would tell you to look at your diet make sure you're not eating, uh, processed foods and, you know, GMO foods, uh, make sure you're not, um, you know, frying things. Uh, I would tell you to eat more omega threes, fatty acids to hydrate the brain. I would tell you to get these natural supplements like CBD to flush out the inflammation that you have and to start repairing what's been damaged. And I would tell you to Start on medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps for energy. Lion's mane is really great for cognition. And I would implore you to do that immediately. Um, And then also really make a concerted effort to make sure that you're sleeping and to uh, make sure that when you wake up that you're hydrated. And then I would also try to get you to implement intermittent fasting um, so I'm on a 16, eight regiment, and that means that, um, my eating window is eight hours and I usually eat from 12 to 8 PM. Yeah. And what, what that does is it allows your body to change from glucose to ketosis. And when you're in a state of ketosis, then your body's, uh, surviving off of the gunk in your cells and in, in your brain too. So when, and then when you go to bed and you're doing that, your, the blood isn't in your stomach. It's rushing to the areas that are damaged in our body, which for us, it's going to be our brain. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. I'll take that on advice. And um, I'd, I'd just conscious of time, Dan, because I know you've got a call or two. Where can people find you? Um, 
and and you know and keep up to to what you're doing and and where you're up to now yeah they can find me on instagram daniel carcillo 13 they can find me on my website um danielcarcillo.com on twitter it's carbon boom 13 that's an old that's an old handle that one (laughs) i like i like you know it it reminds me of somebody that i never want to be again you know so it's a it's a it's a good reminder um and then linkedin daniel carcillo um, and, uh, yeah. And then chapter five foundation as well. So there, and there's a ton of emails and links to be able to get a hold of me. Awesome, Dan. Thanks very much for, for giving your time. And I'm sure we'll catch up on, on WhatsApp or whatever and, and talk a bit more and, um, and sort of, you know, I'm, I'm all up for developing the next phase and, and the next, the way to treat and, and sort of diagnose concussion and, 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 and help make it better. So top man you're a legend the screen's going dark as the sun's going down on my on my screen mate um but thanks pal you're gonna blow hope you enjoyed the podcast and hope everyone is well with what is going on i hope the podcasts give a wealth of knowledge and some food for thought this one certainly has given me some things to think about in terms of concussion and what needs to be done going forward with it i think some of the stuff dan has been talking about it, it definitely deserves research I've been across and keeping up to date with the research in terms of psilocybin helping mental health problems and severe depression, which I do find fascinating. If anyone has any interesting stuff on this, you can send an email to hello at mentalitymagazine.com. Also, you can take a look at joining me and a group of other boys concerned with upping our mental health and being proactive in that sense at patreon.com forward slash mentality. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mentality you can join the club and you can join the quest forward to go beyond stigma and improve performance on that you can have a look at the stuff that we have there and to help everyone with the situation you can go to mentalitymagazine.com forward slash coronavirus which will show you a host of practical models that me and dr alan johnston a top sports psychiatrist for team gb and the lma football managers mental health He has devised some plans and some processes that you can go through to get your mental health in order, but also to put the best things in place for this unprecedented time and this tough time that we're all having to deal with. Really, really appreciate you listening to the podcast, guys. Really, really appreciate your support and mentality. Please tell your mates about it. Please tell your family about it and pass on those models if it's a physical way of support that you can send on to them. And also you can have a look at what we're doing at mentalityapparel.com. Let's all try to cultivate the best we can in these times and try to bring something new into our lives, experiment, explore, and go from there. Cheers, guys. Cheers.